Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Censored, the podcast where I try and try again to find the filth in banned books. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, historian and thirsty reader. As I start season six, I want to thank you all for listening. If you want to support the show, check out the links in the show notes to merch and Patreon. But if you can't do that, share your love by reviewing the podcast. Or share the episode link with your mammy. I bet your mam has read lots of these dirty old books herself. I decided to begin this new season with a notorious novel by a woman now as infamous as her books. The Country Girls was Edna O'Brien's first novel, published in 1960 to great acclaim in the English-speaking world. An Irish national newspaper described it as quite remarkable. It's a tale of friendship, family and romance, set half in rural Ireland, half in Dublin. Kathleen Brady is the heroine of this coming-of-age novel, though her best friend Barbara Brennan is a pretty memorable character too. Lots of you will have heard of The Country Girls before, because it's one of the most notorious Irish novels of the 20th century. That's all the censor's fault, because they banned it in June 1960. Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, the panto villain of censorship scandals, said it was a smear on Irish womanhood. I am both impressed and intrigued. So many stories swirl around the country girls, book burnings, threatening letters, protests, that you can lose sight of the novel itself. It's part one of a trilogy, so I've decided to read them all this season. I want to discover how the novels and the scandals relate to each other, beginning with this one, The Country Girls, then The Lonely Girl, which was published in 1962, through to the last work, Girls in Their Married Bliss, from 1964. Of course, Edna O'Brien wasn't the first Irish woman writer to be censored, but she was the first to vociferously and publicly condemn her blacklisting. She embraced the notoriety, so her activism is also part of the story. To open my deep dive into the Country Girls trilogy, I'm joined by Dr Maureen O'Connor of University College Cork. Maureen has already written a lot about O'Brien, and her new book, Edna O'Brien and the Art of Fiction, will be published this October. Hi Maureen, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. This is my first podcast, so I'm very excited. Well, I hope it'll be a good experience. (laughs) (laughs) So I normally open uh, with a drink that sort of reflects the book or is inspired by the book. And there was actually quite a lot of drink drinks consumed in the book. Not so much food, but there were various beverages served. And the one that I decided to go for is Kathleen, the heroine of the story, is served cordial by a publican called Jack Holland, who's deeply embroiled with her mother and her father. And it's all very complicated. That I thought there was something about the way he served her the cordial and she's a child in the pub and he's being a bit gross. And I thought that was a really redolent moment. So that for me was my choice. But did you have any suggestions? 
That that is a redolent moment, but I I I I cannot stand the thought of that cordial and how like dusty and sticky it must be. And I just so I think I would go for I think uh you know in later in the book this is this is I suppose you know redolent of a, of a different stage in the novel when the the two country girls have gone to Dublin and they are fascinated by the idea of pink gin. Now it doesn't seem to live up to its. <laughs> to its appeal in the mind uh but i think i could i could do something more with the pink gin than i could with the cordial (laughs) pink gin's very on trend right now so they (laughs) were ahead of their time (laughs) yes because they're trying to like be grown-ups and fancy and sitting around drinking gin and yet i think it's quite sweet and typical that um they are trying to be sophisticated uh this is their their whole you know, kind of a vision for themselves, you know, getting, buying, buying black brassiers. And, but the, what, what seems to kind of appeal about the gin is that it's pink. So it's, it's sort of like, there's a still little like a childishness about it that I find quite charming about the whole, you know, their, their, their time in Dublin is, uh, is amazingly innocent really in, in some ways. Yeah, it is very sweet that just the way that they arrive, these ingenies off the bus from the bog, and they're like trying to work out how to fit into the big city and have a great time, preferably. That's their plan. <laughs> and so reading it like a censor, I do think the idea that girls should have fun in the city would probably offend them for a start. Um, but that's quite far into the book. So I was thinking, you know, if I'm re- reading it from the beginning with those censorship specs on, I thought that the first moment that sort of jumped off the page was when Kathleen talks about her best friend Baba and herself. And Baba is actually short for Bridget. And they're very good friends in a frenemy kind of tension filled way. And she talks about how they once took all their clothes off and tickled each other. And that Kathleen has had to bribe Baba to buy her silence ever since. And I thought that was definitely that would really upset them because it implied all sorts of furtive sexuality that children aren't supposed to have. So that was my thought that would tick a box for them. But are there any moments that you find particularly, you know, offensive to a censorship mindset that might jump off the page for them? I think that that is, you know, an important moment because that's right there that you picked out there. It's right there in the first chapter. And I mean, on the second or third page, we have, uh, you know, uh, a discussion of um, Hickey, the farmhand, uh, relieving himself in a peach tin that he dumps out the window. Like the 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 book is kind of dirty in every sense of dirty, both sexually dirty and like, you know, bodily filth and emissions of various kinds right from the beginning. So I think it, you know, it starts in this, you know, earthy, uh, the you know, the adjective Frank gets applied to it many times over the decades and, and there's no let up. And I, I do think that, that that's definitely a shocking minute, a moment about the, the two girls, you know, tickling each other in this sexual way. And if, if it wasn't clear within a few lines, Hickey again comes into it. And he, when, uh, you know, he interrupts uh, Kathleen thinking about, this particular sort of issue she has with Baba, uh, and she confesses to him that she wants to become a nun, and he says, "Oh, that's you know that's disgusting." Two heads on a pillow, and then she feels kind of sick. So, like right away, the whole kind of forbidden sexual elements are are brought in, and with, again, in the first chapter, we as you you mentioned, Jack Holland, uh, Jack Holland is introduced, and he, as you said, he's the creepy kind of predator who uh, is always kind of importuning Kathleen for kisses and has a totally inappropriate erotic interest in her and, you know, reveals later in the novel that he's assuming she's going to marry him. I mean, (laughs) so you have like quite disturbing um, sexual sort of texture to this little girl's life right from the go. Like she's aware of male urination. Like, I don't even know if I, I don't know, how, how young are you when, you when you're a little girl and you realize that men have a particular way of urinating that's different than yours? I don't know. But it's it's so um, kind of gritty and earthy right from the start. And I think it just doesn't let up. Um, uh, and the kind of 
the idea of this being sinful it really doesn't sort of come into the discussion at all, or even like the consciousness of, of Kathleen, I think, until she gets to the convent. And then again, there's more sort of, you know, um, same-sex desire there. Cynthia, the older girl who takes an interest in Kathleen, and they kiss on the landing, and Kathleen develops, a, you know, a passionate crush on one of the nuns. And there's, uh, there's even in the convent, you know, and then they write that dirty mass card. There, as you said, there's a kind of a an almost precocious uh, understanding um, of, of sexuality and the, and the function of sex and all the, you know, bits and pieces uh, from very early in the novel. I think, feel like it just builds and builds and builds. And I'd say a sense you're reading this, but probably had a long list that was like filling up pages and pages. Personally, I feel that it comes to a kind of crescendo with that, that scene in the boarding house is the word I'm trying to think of boarding house there at the end. Uh, when Mr. Gentleman has, <laughs> persuades uh, Kathleen to, for them to take their clothes off and look at each other naked before they go away for the weekend. And I think what be, it would be is the fact that the, the man's penis, Mr. Gentleman's penis, is, uh, is hilarious. And Kathleen is just dying laughing at this, the goofiness of, of, the, of what the, the mechanics are like there. So I think, you know, this idea of kind of the purity of the young girl, and especially the kind of the Irish female in general, being a bit naive about sexuality as part of a certain um, you know, picture of, of, of Irish womanliness. I mean, it's betrayed from the first page and it builds and builds and builds to this scene uh, at the end, which I think um, really the kind of the humor associated with the sexual, the kind of, uh, you know, enjoyment. I know there's a kind of a free song between that early scene that you're talking about, or the reference that you're talking about between Baba and Kathleen, it's, you know, it's, it's secretive. There's a kind of an element of sort of um, exploitation, blackmail but it's obviously also there's pleasure you know so the idea of sex being pleasurable something that you can laugh about something that you can enjoy that uh that is a part of everyday life i think all of that contributes to something that is just absolutely beyond the bounds of acceptability in the climate of you know 1960 ireland for for sure yeah it's fascinating what you say about secrecy actually i think that's one of the more interesting parts of the way O'Brien constructs it, that the secrecy and the furtiveness is so much bound up with all of the sexuality that is expressed within it. It's all, you know, clandestine and secret and we can't talk about it. Um, but yet there appears to be a lot of it. And it seems to capture that contradiction of what we're learning about that time in Irish history is that everyone was having quite a lot of sex and it was just uh, no one wanted to ever even say the word, but they were definitely up to it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I think, you know, there's um, that there the kind of the forbidden secretive part of it is what is titillating and exciting about it, too. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's part of what one of the complications of Kathleen's sort of enjoyment of her you know, the, the, these tickling scenes with Baba is that it is meant to be a secret. Like so much of her, her romantic life, which is she is trying to conceal from other people at all times. So apart from those individual sex scenes, I mean, the one with Mr. Gentleman in the boarding house is hysterically funny. I, I think we, you know, we should recommend that to everyone for laughs alone. I did think that there was more that may maybe would have upset the establishment conventional view of Ireland. Um, some of the big themes within O'Brien's work are definitely about exploring the darker side. And one that really struck me because it's so much about rural Ireland is not just the dirtiness, actually, which, of course, it's such a good way of understanding it. There is so much about toilets. The countryside is pretty, pretty manky, actually. But within rural Ireland, her father, Kathleen's father, he's, of course, the patriarch, the man of the house, and he's actually drinking his inheritance daily. Um, and just in one line, there was just one line in which O'Brien said that the land had actually been inherited by him from his father, of course, who had taken it from, you know, previous English occupiers. So there is this sense that like the inheritors of colonialism have not done a good job of 
taking on the mantle of responsible patriarchy. I mean, there's still mortgages and debt and alcoholism and violence. You know, it's still a very unfortunate society to live in rural Ireland. It didn't turn into a, an idyll just because they're all independent and they're all in charge. Do you think that sort of critique and others like it was part of the furious response to the novel? Absolutely. I think apart, yeah, apart from the, the sexual uh, frankness, uh, I think the, the, the sort of, and now this isn't like an Angela's Ashes sort of misery lit, because I think there's an awful lot of joy uh, in the novel, really. But, but it's also kind of unsparing in uh, describing uh, a quite impoverished um, rural experience. And, you know, it's not just, you know, it's not just drink. It's also the horses, you know, the, uh, uh, Mr. Brady is passionately addicted to her, keeps buying horses and selling off fields to buy more horses. An absolutely irresponsible patriarch. And, you know, you get the, you know, the, just even just, you talked about, uh, drinking and meals. The description of meals is just painful. The way the mother is, you know, kind of having the, you know, the Pope's nose and dry toast. And she's always, you know, uh, uh, trying to economize. She's economizing, economizing, economizing. And she has her little, again, kind of stealthy cigarette. We find out later she goes into the the, the never used drawing room to, to sneak a ciggy every so often. But, but yeah, you don't, you don't meet anybody who seems to be, um, uh, in the in the countryside, uh, doing well at all. I mean, definitely the kind of the um, the mantle being passed on to the the native Irish is not seen as something that has been successful. And I think this is a theme that um, O'Brien has picked up in later novels as well. I mean, a very similar kind of picture is in the House of Splendid Isolation, where there's somebody who has similarly got you know was a, a big house, a Protestant big house, and it's just been run into the ground. And this goes back to something else I think that you also picked up on that there isn't this kind of bucolic pastoral kind of idyll. I mean, everybody's everybody is either working hard or they're not working or it's not um, in any way kind of the, you know, revival peasant uh, ideal of people, you know, dancing at the crossroads or anything like that. It's it's quite brutal. You know, it's a real hard scrabble life that these characters are leading and uh, that's that is not really helping kind of a picture of Ireland one of the things I was thinking about since we were uh, planning on talking about this novel it just so happened there was a piece in the Irish Times yesterday uh, about kind of you know modernizing Ireland in this period and just before this novel appears we have in the 50s we have the establishment of Board Falce we have the first transatlantic flight by Aer Lingus to New York we have um you know, you have films uh, that start selling a particularly kind of, you know, rural image of Ireland, like the the Quiet Man a- across the diaspora, and so you know, tourism as a hugely important industry is established just is this being established just before this novel appears, and there's a particular vision of Ireland as a place to visit, sentimental and nostalgic and again, the countryside as this kind of retreat, which it has been sort of in the colonial uh, imagination for for centuries at this stage, but as an actual selling point, a way to make money is is just kind of coming into um, kind of consciousness and, and realization. And to show this kind of Ireland in a really widely read popular novel, uh, I think is also one of the reasons why there was a bit, it wasn't just political or moral or religious, but it was economic, there was like some economic anxiety, I think, around seeing something like this going abroad, literally. <laughs> I do often wonder about those early American tourists arriving into Ireland with its, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, rudimentary facilities, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, basic. My father was in the travel industry. Basic is what that's called. Yeah. <laughs> I know, kind of electricity sometimes, toilets hardly ever. (laughs) Yeah, and I do think that's something that when you read it, that's part of the texture of the novel. Although, as you say, it's not misery lit at all. So it's now infamous, of course, because it was banned. I mean, if you type banned books Ireland into Google, the country girls will be one of the few that comes up. Um, now, there are lots there, as as we know now, there are hundreds and thousands of books that are actually banned. So 
it's more about the reaction that the banning provoked, isn't it? That that's why it became famous. It's one of the notable censorship scandals of the 20th century. And why do you think that the blacklisting of the country girls made news then and still continues to be discussed, really? I think the, the kind of the whiplash is one reason, because when it, it had been very heavily, and I think, you know, very professionally, uh, skillfully promoted before it even appeared. And so it was eagerly anticipated. It was received rapturously in the English speaking world. I mean, the initial reviews in the UK, in Ireland, in, in, uh, in the United States were just almost over the top. You know, so there was this uh, absolute excessive language about what was uh what was what was in store you know this wonderful new writer and it doesn't it doesn't hurt at all that she was you know physically very attractive you know so you know that always sells you know and you have a kind of a beautiful young woman who has you know, kind of shaved a couple of years off so she seemed even younger than she was and, and didn't mention the fact that she was the mother of two small children just like she was just kind of fresh off the farm herself kind of promotion which I have no problem with. Look, you know, she's like a TikTok influencer, you know, kind of thing. She's got her, her, you know, her, her, her persona, which doesn't necessarily have to map onto her, her private self. So, uh, so there was this just huge embrace of, of the novel and of herself when she first appeared and then just, this is the worst thing that ever happened. And I mean, she's, you know, a blot on Ireland. It just, it was such a sudden, um, seeming turnaround. And of course, you know, the Irish censorship board and John Charles McQuaid, this was notorious among writers uh, whose own works had not been allowed to uh, enter into Ireland. I mean, it was, it was a cause celebre among, among writers that she had been, uh, you know, after such a rapturous kind of initial reception that she had been uh, uh, banned. So um, the, the fact that somebody who, you know, seem to be poised for massive you know, international success would be banned. I think it also appealed to a kind of prurience maybe uh, outside of Ireland, uh, you know, the, a kind of a fascination with the backwardness of Ireland. Like, like it's a similar kind of weird fascination that, that we have with what we think of as kind of, you know, benighted, backward, like savage primitives, you know? So, so to go back to kind of her telegenic sort of uh, uh, qualities, you know, she was being interviewed like on, you know, programs in Panorama and places. And she was uh, really milking, again, I think intelligently, uh, the the fact of being banned and of being censored and helping it to promote sales. And absolutely it did, you know, and it made the it made her and the book notorious. And it it is, you know, I don't I don't think that it's her best book. I think there are other novels that are as good, but it's the one that is remembered. And I think because of the incredible kind of flap around it and all these stories, again, that I don't know what the source, for instance, the story that it was banned in the chapel yard in her home village. I can't find any actual evidence that that ever happened, but what a great story that the priest burned copies of the book in the, you know, so, um, the, the promotion machine kind of really worked with that. Uh, uh, so I think that explains maybe why it was, it was such a kind of sensation at the time. Why does it continue to be something that we think about? I suppose certainly those state of the nation novels of the late nineties, not so much wild December's, but definitely house of splendid isolation down by the river uh, in the forest. Those were all novels that kind of uh, reignited the, um, the outrage machine in the Irish, you know, official Ireland, especially Irish media, uh, and to some extent English media, but especially in Ireland, that you know, who does she think she is? Talking about you know the X case or the IRA or the troubles or uh, a notorious murder in Clare, you know, kind of te- she was very much a, a truth teller again, and everybody got angry all over again with her. So it's it just kind of brought up all those old memories, I think, in some ways. Interesting. Yeah, I ha- I've read some of those. I read some of those in the 90s. Now, I didn't like them at the time, so I am going to try and revisit them, actually. But I don't know, now that you say that, that it was because of the negative public perception around them at the time. You know, I don't remember... I don't remember the publicity around the book, but of course that really does infect uh, how you read texts because it's just the background kind of noise. So God, yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
you know, and a lot of this also comes down to gender because, you know, certainly men seem to be able to write about real life murders, you know, lightly fictionalized uh, notorious crimes or whatever without getting the kind of attacks that uh, Edna O'Brien got from people that we, you know, all seem to admire greatly, like Fintan O'Toole when she wrote about the Emilda Riney murders in, in, uh, in the forest. Um, I mean, she was just savaged for, for doing that. Um, like an unwomanly lack of sensitivity to the families. You know, I don't, you know, why she was expected to have to have like extra um, sensitivity. Uh, and yeah, you know, again, again, kind of airing Ireland's dirty laundry, like down by the river and um, family rape and uh, abortion and the X case. And I understand it because the she had gotten so much bad publicity for so many decades that, you know, I'm somebody, I'm kind of a latecomer to my appreciation for her because I swallowed all of that stuff down as much as anybody did. So you just have this almost knee-jerk reaction. Well, if she said it, there's something wrong, there's something inaccurate, there's something she's uh, dramatizing. Um, but she is rarely dramatizing the truth, really. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And she is often, I suppose, herself personally um, conflated with her fiction in ways, I think, like you say about the men. I mean, John McGahran's work is heavily autobiographical, especially the earliest novels. And no one really holds that against him or the books. They just sort of shrug it off. Um, so why do you think it happened to her? Is this one of those gender problems again in the reception of literature? Yes. I mean, I think she's not alone in this. And this has been written about that. It does seem to uh, be more grating for some reason for readers and reviewers when a woman has autobiographical elements in her writing. Um, uh, certainly, <clears throat> as you say, John McGahern, uh, didn't have any kind of negative feedback because of that. And, or someone else who she gets uh, compared to um, Philip Roth, like Portnoy's complaint, again, very much based on his own experience. And I mean, that book caused outrage, but not because it was autobiographical, but I think in O'Brien's case in particular, this has been um, maybe abetted by the efforts of her husband at the time to kind of, cast himself as the actual author he he just took her sort of her gushing kind of memories that she wrote down and crafted them into fiction and then his nephew Stan Gebler Davies you know continued that you know um kind of campaign of discrediting her uh and in the uh when Time and Tide that novel came out he wrote a supposed review of it where he talks about oh well, but women or not women but housewives from Wimbledon you know sort of run their knickers to the typewriter oh it's outrageous yeah yeah 
when I read about her husband trying to sort of say, well, actually, you know, I had to tidy it up because it was a bit crap. I, just, I couldn't believe it. I was like, God almighty. You like she literally was being robbed of her authorial rights. Oh, but there was, as I said, there was, you know, like himself and his nephew kind of kept up this narrative that she just uh, sort of effortlessly wrote down the things that happened to her. Like there was no artistry involved. Um, and I think this is also where we get into a larger sort of gendered issue. And, and this has to do also with um, the kinds of things that are, that, you know, happen to women in their personal lives when that appears in fiction that's oh well that's that sounds like her, her her personal problems there's nothing sort of universal or abstract about a woman's life whereas a man writing about his life oh like this is the human struggle and oh we can learn so much about our, our human nature from this individual man's autobiography but a woman's autobiography has nothing to say to us that's just you know, there's there's this i think that that's a, a larger issue that gets um that she gets caught up in with uh, with her book. So, I mean, and, and the idea that she lacks an artistry or ability, again, you know, a seed planted by her husband persisted for decades in, um, you know, reviews and, and critiques of, of her work that she was, you know, ungrammatical and, you know, unconscious. <laughs> she was somehow unconsciously writing. Um and it wasn't just, you know, male reviewers either. I mean, that's, I think it was Victoria Glendinning who talked about how she doesn't seem to even understand what she's doing. I mean, every writer, there's some element of it that is outside of your conscious kind of deliberation, but you still are obviously always making choices and know what you're doing to a great extent. The Country Girls was written very quickly, though, wasn't it? I think maybe that helped feed into the narrative that it was... It was just kind of simple in a kind of an uncontrived literary sense because she did write it quite quickly. Yeah, she, she did. And I think a lot of first novels get written very quickly. I don't think that's at all unusual. Um, and I think um, it's also important to keep in mind, which doesn't enter into the story very much, is that she had been writing for quite a while at that stage. She had, um, you know, she had published little sketches and short stories and even pieces about what it meant to be a writer you know, she had been writing. So it's not like I've never said at a typewriter before, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a novel. You know, it, it, it didn't, it didn't happen like that. Maybe part of that is a little mythologized, can deliberately mythologize, cannily mythologize that it is this, you know, just sort of, you know, rush of uh, inspired uh, writing. But I, I, but I still do believe that it probably the actual writing uh, probably was something that had been building and building and building again i it's not at all unusual for for a first novel to be very quickly written because you've been sort of storing it up especially if you're somebody who is determined to write a novel and i think she had that ambition for a while it isn't just that um it just kind of happened somehow you know she was working in publishing at the time and as i say she had been um you know saturday evening post and the bell and lots of uh places had she'd placed her writing in a number of prestigious journals up until up until this period yeah it's fascinating how there's that um tension in our understanding of the book between all of the publicity around it and the person herself and then the text and how all of these things kind of work together and then the legacies i mean that's one of the interesting things about a book that becomes famous like this is yeah. how it achieves all of these layers and you know our relationship is very complicated because of that yeah and she's you know she's somebody who has been interviewed so much there's just no way when i was trying to kind of encompass the massive amount of material there is on her i mean interviews alone it's just amazing and there were certain stories that she would tell and retell um and they'd be slightly different you know every time um but it has uh, this momentous kind of place in Irish cultural memory, for sure. Yeah, it does. I mean, that I I was waiting a long time to read it in order to try and understand more about the books around it before I tackled it. And I have to say, I'm I'm both glad that I didn't read it till now, but also sorry because I feel like I should have read this. Actually, probably when I was about thirteen would have been the perfect moment to yeah, read yeah. it. Um, but it was, of course, it was. You know, for me at 13, it would be considered an old book and I wouldn't have been interested. 
So we will move on to the best part. The best part of the podcast really is censorship bingo. Oh, okay, great. People tell me this is their favorite part. <laughs> and who am I? Who am I to say no? I'm intrigued to see because it's such an infamous book and its legacy is so much about its filthiness in a explicit sexual sense, just how much how many scores it gets on the bingo card. Right. So starting as usual with breasts. There's definitely a lot about breasts in it. There's a lot about bras as well, which is almost as bad, I feel, for the times. Yeah. And that goes back to the funny, like, filthiness. I mean, like in the, you know, the, the physical sense of how they want to buy black brassieres so they don't have to wash them as much. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, rudimentary bathing facilities are a big issue. <laughs> and I mean, and that's kind of one of the funny, one of the really funny parts of the novel when uh, they're, the girls are eating this horrendous meat in the convent and the, and Baba stuffs hers down her, 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 her jersey front and then she's pretending that it's breasts and she's walking around with this rotten meat in her top. <laughs> and they're putting a utter, a utter infusion that's meant for cows onto their onto their their own like budding breasts. I mean it's, it's there's a lot of breast obsession actually in the novel. Yes, although normally when I do the the uh, breast section in in the censorship bingo it's male authors so it's a totally different way of thinking <laughs> yeah, about boobs yeah, in this yeah, particular yeah, one. Yeah. but yeah we would have to take that with bells on um next up bestiality well no no no, no. <laughs> definitely not uh sex work i didn't think that even there was a mention not even a hint because kathleen is quite innocent although baba does like going out for dinner in the hopes of getting you know like she uses her sexuality to get free drink and yeah. dinner, but it's not quite sex work. Yeah, I don't think that. Uh, I don't think it quite gets to that level. No, no. Racism? No, I didn't think so. No. Although there are quite a lot of uh, non-Irish people in the book, and they play a very interesting role in all sorts of ways. Yeah, um, Mr. Gentleman and, and the landlady Joanna. Yeah, Joanna. And yeah, and the other people in the boarding house. Yeah. And drugs, I didn't think so. Obviously booze, yes. Yeah, a lot of alcohol. <laughs> a lot of alcohol. Now, she is given some sort of pills when she learns of her mother's death. That's She's right. She's sort of drugged up. So I suppose we could, maybe we could take it for that. Yeah. Yeah, let's. Politics. I mean, not explicitly, but in all sorts say, of other ways. implicitly, yeah. So maybe not really if we're... Yeah. It's not obvious, as in it's obvious to you know, Irish critics at the time, but perhaps not anyone else. Yeah. Uh, swearing. No, everyone's very well spoken, aren't they? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't remember any, any swears as the kids say. <laughs> yes. And I think that reflects that, that tone, like that it's from a, a young girl's perspective. The, the language is very clean. Uh, infidelity. Well, yes. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Mr. Gentleman is married and you have the kind of suggestion of some kind of flirtation or whatever between, as you say, Jack Holland and Kathleen's mother. And, um, uh, you know, where does Kathleen's mother go? Like, that's always that, that, you know, she vanishes with the man. Like what did, I mean, it's not ever actually confirmed that she's dead. Yes. Assumed. And, 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 and Martha Brennan hanging out in the lobby or then the bar or whatever, you know, she's kind of loose, uh, you know, whatever, is there something something going on there too? So definitely infidelity, at, at least implied, or and or, or the possibility of it is on the horizon for sure. I do think Martha Brennan going to the the local hotel was it with a blazer and a bra and no shirt on. I was like, what? I mean, in the nineteen fifties. So yes, definitely infidelity, crime. All of the, the sleazy men around these very young girls. Yeah, I mean, yeah. at the beginning, Kathleen is, what, 14, 12, 14? And Jack Holland is, you know, we're going to get married. And Although it's not written in, in a really sinister, sleazy way, it is unpleasant. Um, and definitely criminal, even even by that, those standards. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we could tick that. Genitalia. Yes. yes. That's... In the uh, incident in the in the convent when the girls write that smutty line, yeah. 
about Father What's His Name having a long thing. Yeah. Also, I mean the la- the, the scene with Mister Gentleman in, in in the sitting room of the boarding house, and it's implied in the tickling that we started out talking about. So yeah. So yes, we can tick that. Abortion. Not in this one. No. Uh, orgies. Well, no. What no. happens? No. <laughs> know what that meant if you asked any of the characters I don't think so. no. <laughs> yes um, they're quite innocent sexual assault I suppose it depends on what you mean by sexual assault I mean I certainly feel that you know Jack Holland is attempting sexual assault for the inappropriate advances and I mean Mr. Gentleman also although you know Kathleen wants him to kiss her she is a child Yeah, like she cannot give consent <laughs> no absolutely not so yeah, we could take that, I think. Extramarital pregnancy. I don't think so. No. Uh, masturbation. No. Mutual masturbation, maybe. But <laughs> Possibly. Are they tickling themselves or each other? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the question. Yeah, I, no, I don't think so. No. I don't no. think it's enough. Uh, sex toys, definitely no. not. Feminism. See, this is always an interesting one as to, you know, how you discuss these things. This women-centered narrative and the fact that the girls and the women behave in their own way, I think, in a way that seems to be without reference to men, or at least in ways that men dislike intensely. I yeah. think that that's, that's quite a feminist I think attitude. so, too. And I think even just being so frank about the, the exploitation and the, you know, both both kind of the ways in which... You know, uh, Kathleen's mother is just a kind of a slave to the house, and uh, even even Mrs. even fast Mrs. Brennan, you know, ends up kind of you know disappointed and miserable. I think definitely showing the the misery of kind of the patriarchal marriage and all those things. It, it, it's I, I feel it, that there's no question, but it's a feminist text. Yeah, yeah, I think we should take that. Next up is divorce. No, because, I mean, it's completely illegal and impossible to yeah. have. Yeah. And on other things that were illegal and impossible to have, contraception. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is, like, Joanna, when um, Kathleen is preparing yeah. to go yeah. to Vienna, which sounds amazing, with Mr. Gentleman, Joanna says, yeah, you don't want to end up with a baby at the end of it. Yeah. So yeah. there is, in that sentence, a hint there are ways not to. Uh, but poor Kathleen, of course, doesn't even know what she's talking about, which is really tragic that she's going to make this amazing step. Well, she's I mean, she's so innocent because she <laughs> because she says, um, you know, oh, we don't have to worry about that because we won't be married. Like, it, like she, in her head, she's saying, well, yeah, but you don't get babies till you've been married for a while. So I don't think that's <laughs> yeah. I don't know why she's even bringing that up. <laughs> it's just. I know it's tragic. <laughs> so I think that one sentence does merits a tick because they are so super sensitive to any concept of contraception. And next up, menstruation. No, no. Surely I mean, not. it is something that's in a lot of the novels and stories, but it's not here. No. Then there's blasphemy. It depends on how you define it. Certainly, the you know the dirty verse on the mask card was considered. Blasphemous. Oh, that's true. They but actually that's kind said of an that. attempt at blasphemy. I don't know if they achieved blasphemy, but they tried it. Tried to be blasphemous. <laughs> well, they did write about sex on the reverse of a mass card, which was, I mean, it's pretty offensive to Catholic beliefs. Um, blasphemy. Well, do you know what? I think we should take it because it, okay. in, you know, the book really did provoke an overreaction from clerics as well. So yes. And then oral sex. No, no sex really happens at all, actually, <laughs> in, in spite of what you might think. Graphic violence. I mean, she is beaten by her father once or twice at the beginning. Yeah, but it's not but it's not graphic, though. No, it's more the threat and the impending fear that he's going to walk across the threshold. So, no, I don't think we can take that. LGBTQI content. I mean, I don't think so. Or did I miss really, something? I mean, I guess I, I guess I feel that there's a, a lot of same-sex desire between between Baba and um, and Kathleen, between Kathleen and Cynthia, between Kathleen and the uh, the nun. You know, I feel like there is. 
th those objects of desire seem so much more desirable the way they're represented in the novel than any of the the men. I mean, even Mr. Gentleman, when when she describes him, you're like, ew. Oh, I know. Like, there's nothing. He's like gray and old and colorless lips. It's like, oh my god! Yeah, like she's kissing him, and it's all romantic. She opens her eyes and goes, "He looks very, very old." Yeah, it's, it's like, like even it's, it's almost like she's trying to manufacture this, you know, love object out of you know the very poor materials that are at hand. Um, Whereas like other, other women and uh, you know, other girls and nuns and, uh, you know, th they're actually attractive and they're, you know, they're, de they're desirable in a way that doesn't seem as manufactured as the whole thing with Mr. Gentleman. Yeah. Yes. And it's much more joyful and easy and relaxed with in, in those contexts than, yeah, Mr. Gentleman, which is all stress and <laughs> worry. So, yeah, we should take that. So let me see. How many do we have? Nine. Yeah. Nine. That's not bad. I mean, the the ones that score the highest tend to be about the 15, 16. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a long way to go before it gets to uh, Catch-22 or Port Noise Complaint. Yeah, def definitely. And I mean, even in our discussion of them, we had to sort of interpret, you know, could this be considered blasphemy? Yeah, it's not it's not really scoring that high. No, I think if if you read it as a casual reader without working very hard, I think that you would probably give it about a five, really. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in spite of its reputation, it's it's a very mild book in that sense, in an explicit sexual sense. And especially when you consider as you go into the sixties how explicit the books are going to get. Oh absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's I think as 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 you pointed out, it's it's much more um offensive of sensibilities and uh you know kind of a protective idea of of Irishness and the purity of Irish womanhood and the whole you know uh Madonna image of the you know the virginal Irish mother uh it, it, it those are the kinds of um pieties that are being blasphemed if you will by the book there's there, there's really nothing there's really nothing salacious in the novel. There really isn't. Yeah. I'm sorry for people who are looking for salacious <laughs> yeah, reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I suppose taking the figure of girls who are often the focus of the fear around censorship, like girl, yeah. the girl figure, yeah. this innocent young yeah. person who's going to pick up the wrong book and be corrupted. Yeah. And yeah. here in the country girls are two girls who don't in a way need any books to be corrupted. They are already, you know, offending against all of those sensibilities and are uncontrollable and different in spite of the fact that they are really very nice girls you know yeah, they're not I mean, that, difficult yeah, I girls that's, that's what's that's what's really interesting about the the way that these girls are represented because they are quite knowing in some ways and they are and i suppose that has to do with growing up in the country there's certain things that you just know about sex when you grow up in the country you can't can't be avoided um and yet they remain so naive and innocent and sweet somehow at the same time. They're not jaded. They're not nasty. They're not, um, they, they don't seem to have been sort of damaged in any way. I, I think that as the, as the trilogy proceeds, you can see the way some of these things that have been established actually do end up damaging them. But if you're just reading this novel, it, it, it's, as as we said earlier on, it's 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 actually uh, it's it's very it's life affirming, really, and, and and joyous more than it's anything else. Yeah, it's it's a really lovely book to read, and I think you know, certainly if you want to while away a Sunday and have a pleasant read, it's one of those. It's a pleasant read, um, which you couldn't say for McGavern's The Dark, which no. is from the same period. I mean, that is. That is a hard book to read. That's a yeah. brutal book to read. Yeah. It wouldn't cheer you up on a rainy Sunday afternoon, but the country girls actually would. So yeah. <laughs> I think we should all go out and read it more. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, it is not a dark novel, which um, I think maybe is part of what made some critics uh, start to turn against uh, O'Brien as the trilogy develops, because they do get darker, especially the last uh, volume and the epilogue that, you know, came along uh, later 
the the vision really does darken quite a bit. I think appropriately and reasonably, <laughs> you know, logically, but um, people really responded to I think initially the freshness and the sweetness of this of this novel and wanted more of that, please, rather yes. than kind of you know, the the reality of of maturing and, and learning the truth of the world, you know. <laughs> Yes, because it is, of course, part one in a trilogy. And so it's a coming of age trilogy, you could say. And this is the the girly bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much, Maureen, for talking to me. That was wonderful. I had a great time. That was very fun. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because um, I actually was realizing some new things about the book as we were talking, which is great. You know, and I think that's a testament to the book. I thought I had thought this book to death at this stage, but there's still something new, you know, to, and, that, and that's that's why a book is a classic because there's always something new to find in it, yeah. There is. I mean, my 13-year-old self didn't appreciate that old books can have new things to say to younger readers, but I have learned since then. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay, thank you very much, Aoife. So that's book one done. The rest of the trilogy will be along later in the season. Episode 5 will be on The Lonely Girl and Episode 10 on Girls in Their Married Bliss. There's plenty of time to read them if you want to avoid any spoilers. And Edna O'Brien is still writing. She has outlasted all her male contemporaries, which may be another reason people are pissed off with her. She has definitely won the long game, as the rest of the deep dive into the trilogy will reveal. But next episode, we'll leave the woes of rural Ireland behind and examine a proper porno called The Memoirs of Dolly Morton. It's antique porn from 1898, set in the slave-owning state of Virginia. And it probably inspired a moment in James Joyce's Ulysses. I wasn't particularly surprised to see it on the blacklist. I mean, it is actual porn – Except that it was banned in 1994. I know, it's mental. And the book is truly a wild ride, so there's lots to talk about. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.